Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we discuss the Compliance Week survey and articles on the survey inside the mind of the CCO looking at the gender pay gap, compliance role in ESG, and the compliance role in ransomware and cybersecurity. We take a look at some of the upcoming stories from the ESG Focus in the December magazine and discuss a best practices forum to handle a ransomware attack, which will be presented. Know you'll enjoy this podcast. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week. We look at stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm Tom Fox. And I'm Dave Leefort, Managing Director at Compliance Week. Uh, once again, happy to be here joining Tom to bring you some of the top stories that CW is following, uh, some featured writers from CW, and uh, again, as Tom said, to uh, to talk sports. Today, we're going to be talking about our Inside the Mind of the CCO special report and look ahead at some things that we've got coming in December. Well, Dave, we have previewed uh, with some tidbits you've given us over the last couple of episodes inside the mind of the CCO. And and frankly, I think everyone's really looking forward to not only the report, but the data and all of the conversations and dialogue it's going to bring. So uh, now that uh, it's out, could you tell us, uh, give us a really a full rundown on it? Yeah. So I want to touch on uh, a few things in particular um, on the data related to this. So I want to talk about the, we did a really deep dive on the, the gender pay gap in compliance, the, the male versus female. We also did a deep dive on uh, what is compliance's role within ESG. And we did, uh, we, we also did an equally deep dive on compliance's role within the cybersecurity arena. So those are the things I want to touch on today. And so starting with the pay inequity among males and females, uh, just at the, so we, we looked holistically at all job titles, but we decided this year to break it down by, uh, by CCOs. So among CCOs and, uh, CCOs, so we had, so we had 308 respondents to our survey. Uh, among those respondents, 90 of them, uh, were either CCOs or CCOs. So, what our data found, and again, pretty pretty big sample size, but not a huge sample size, that women were paid 71% of what men were paid with the same job titles. And we found that that was sort of, it was a similar disparity, no matter the, the company size or the industry or the level of experience. So we sort of found that uh, across the board. Um, so last year, Last year, that gap was 17%. This year, the gap was 29%. So, you know, you can write some of that off to uh, to sample size and to uh, 
just general year over year trends, but the fact remains that every year we've done this survey, uh, the percentage of uh, the, sorry, the, the gender pay gap disparity was there and it was in double figures. So it's, we, we sort of took a, a deeper dive into that and we talked to some people about it and we really dug down into if compliance is sort of responsible for the overall, I guess, well-being of the organization. They're involved in a company's ESG efforts. They're involved in the company's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So what does that say then about that the fact that there's still this pay disparity, uh, this gender pay disparity that is that that's still prevalent in compliance? So it didn't, you know, you can say that these uh, the ESG efforts and DEI efforts have both advanced over these past two and a half years in particular, yet the data has stayed very similar. So that what that tells us is that companies aren't really putting their money where their words are. Uh, and that, you know, we, we talked to several people um, within the business and that's that's sort of the, the message that uh, that's come across. Uh, from everybody here, so it's it's disappointing. So it's uh, digging down into this a little bit. There's there's a few facts that sort of play out the idea that this is you know this is not just a uh, it's not it's it's not directly related to job title either. So in other words, so females who had been in compliance related roles for you know over ten years. They were paid an average of 67% of what men in that same cohort was. Females with uh, law degrees were paid an average of 75% of men with the same credentials. Uh, female CCOs or CCOs working in financial services, for example, were paid an average of 67% of men with the same job titles in the same industry. And then, you know, look, females working in organizations at large organizations, so more than 10,000 employees. Uh, they were paid an average of 73% of, of their male counterparts. So this is sort of across industry, across company size, and even across job title. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, uh, you know, again, companies in this, in this area are not putting their money uh, where their mouth is. And Allie McDevitt did a really good job. One of our reporters, um, Allie, did a really deep dive into this. She looked really deep into the data. She had some really good interviews. Um, I don't want to steal her thunder, but I just wanted to point out that this was one of our uh, our top performing stories um, from the month of November. It was published in late November. So um, I would encourage everyone to, to check it out. It's still on our homepage. Um, the other thing, uh, two other things, really, if I can just go quickly through this, is is compliance, you know, carving out its role within uh, within a company's ESG efforts. So, so again, going back to our survey here, um, you know, going back to this group of 300, 308 compliance professionals. So of that group, nearly three and four, so 73%, said that they participated at some level in their company's ESG efforts, either part of a committee, as an advisor, or whether they had primary oversight. So that is three and four folks who answered this who were in compliance and answered this question, they played a role in their company's ESG initiative. So two, a year ago when we asked that question, 
the uh, that number was uh, just over 50 percent. So you can see that this year over year comparison, it not only says that compliance's role here is increasing, it's probably really a reflection of companies' efforts in this area increasing. So um, that was a pretty a pretty big takeaway for uh, for us. So the the other the other takeaway is that you know, like I said, there were seventy five percent said they had a role. That means there were twenty five percent that said there was they did not have a role. So you get a quarter of the people who answered say they have no role at all in their uh, in their company's ESG efforts. So we took that small cohort of people, that twenty five percent, and we asked them what what should their role be. So among that group, seventy five percent believe that they should either be part of a committee or have primary oversight. So even among those who had no role at all within their company's ESG efforts, they believe that comply that they should have a role. So, so I think that that that's sort of an indication of so. So what I what I consider that to be is that these twenty five percent of companies, uh, honestly, probably haven't coming around yet to involving compliance. So these are these are probably the companies that you know probably leave it as a as a function of communications or PR. And these, those are the companies that can really get themselves in trouble because when you start making uh, ESG promises or, or in particular, you know, environmental promises, you know, pledging to be carbon neutral by 2030, for example, uh, when you, you know, in the past, that's always been a, a role of the communications or PR department. But more and more, as companies are being held to account for the promises that they make, uh, it's, you know, the phenomenon of greenwashing or, or of saying what you are uh, what you think you can do, but not really testing that against anything, and not in, and then being held accountable for it after the fact. Uh, so these these twenty five percent really, to me, that's that's an indication that there there are still companies out there that you know have not yet uh, got it when it comes to doing ESG the right way and for the right reasons. So I think those are the that's the, that's the main takeaway um, that I had. Uh, from this one, from this piece in particular. And this piece was written by Aaron Nicodemus and also uh, available on uh, the website right now. Lastly, um, I wanted to uh, focus the last point here. Our, our ask, inside the mind of the CCO survey, we also took a deep dive on compliance's role in cybersecurity. Uh, and in particular, in preventing uh, cyber, cyber attacks and ransomware in particular. So. So the, we, we asked companies in particular, or asked these, sorry, compliance practitioners in particular, what were, you know, whether the, the past year has seen several high-profile ransomware events, in particular the Colonial Pipeline attack. So we asked people in, in the aftermath of that, have these high-profile events prompted their businesses or causes some, caused some reaction in their businesses to, to beef up their cybersecurity controls. Uh, and 66, so two out of three, said yes. Yes, they, they, that had a direct impact on, uh, on our, our cybersecurity infrastructure or our cybersecurity investment. And so among, among those who said yes, we asked them, okay, what specific areas are you enhancing your, your cyber defenses? So 71% said invested in new technology. Uh, 70% said increased employee training. 
50% say they patch software vulnerabilities. 50% said they increase testing in tabletop exercises. So you can see that there is a lot of a lot of this activity that a lot of this new investment that companies are making is in direct uh, in direct response to what's happening and, and what has happened. So these are these are lessons learned from from real life situations. Um, so that was really the the big takeaway from uh, from that survey in particular. And I did want to to get to an additional point on here. And I just want to make sure I get my numbers right here. Is so we also asked what is compliance's role in the cybersecurity function. So this one was interesting because thirty about thirty percent said they don't have any role at all, uh, and thirty percent said they're part of a committee. Ten uh, percent only ten percent said they have uh, primary oversight. So this is this is an area that compliance is being called upon more to provide support. So you see more uh, more CISOs taking primary control of cybersecurity controls and and more more of it's more compliance working hand in hand with the with the CISO role. Um, so I thought that's that was interesting too. That sort of validated uh, some other reporting that we had done in the past. Um, and that was a piece that's also uh, posted to uh, to our website written by uh, Jacqueline Jager. Um, you know, the rest of our, our package regarding the inside the mind, uh, we have a really good piece by uh, by Amy Barnard-Bond uh, talking about is, is compliance the happiest profession on earth? And it's, you know, it's tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but for the third consecutive year, we had more than 95% of respondents that uh, indicated that they actually enjoyed their jobs. They liked their jobs. Uh, if you were to ask that of the, the general population, uh, particularly during, you know, what's being called the Great Resignation, I think that, you know, you would find that hovering closer to the 50% range. Um, so it's still very, uh, I guess, indicative that people are in this profession for the right reasons. And they really get a lot of, about what they really get a lot of, uh, sorry, they get a lot out of what they do. And they're in this business for a reason. They want to do the right things for the right reasons. And this sort of a, um, a values driven mission, values driven career choice, uh, they find a lot of satisfaction. And I'm really encouraged to see that that year over year trend hadn't changed. Um, I thought it might because of this, you know, the, again, the, the great resignation where you're having a lot of turnover pretty much everywhere. Uh, and it appears that that's not happening at the same levels in compliance. So uh, what uh, is the team working on for um, December, Dave? So we just actually today wrapped up our December uh, magazine. So our winter edition will be going out to members around the middle of December, being sent off to the printer. And we've got, you know, a few things, a few of our annual staples that are popular. We have our top five compliance fails of the year. We have our top five, uh, I think we're calling it compliance stars or, 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 or companies that we're calling out for some of the great things that they did, uh, over the past year. Uh, we look at the, SEC enforcement trends over the past year, and we look ahead to, uh, we sort of forecast uh, what's to come in 2022. And I'll tell you, the cover uh, the cover story and the headline on the covers is the, the year of ESG. We really see that 
uh, more rulemaking in that area. And, you know, uh, SEC uh, Chairman Gary Gensel was on the cover. So we really put a spotlight on what he in particular is going to be doing or we, we anticipate and what the industry anticipates he'll be doing um, around ESG. So those are those are some things to come that we'll probably talk about on uh, on next month's pod. But I'll I'll leave it at that for now. The um, are there any uh, out of the ordinary sort of events, uh, probably not December, but maybe in January that you could tell us about or uh, maybe update us with your uh, Compliance Week 2022 conference uh, planning and where that yes. may be headed. Yeah, so we're so we've got uh, so we one we have a virtual conference set for uh, it was originally in January we kicked it out to February because uh, January seemed to be a very busy time for people in general coming off the holidays so we have a cyber risk and data privacy our second annual virtual conference on that topic uh, slated to run uh, February fifteenth and sixteenth uh, and that will roll out around the same time as. Uh, Really, something I'm really excited about is we have a, a case study coming out, um, a long form case study. It's going to be about, I don't know, 10,000 words or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, taking a, a 360 degree view of the phenomenon of a ransomware attack. So, what happens when your company is attacked? What are the, what are the steps that companies go through? Sort of a best practices look at how to how to handle a ransomware attack from, from the very beginning when an employee walks into the office, opens up an email they shouldn't, clicks on a link, and realizes, holy cow, what have I done? All the way through uh, you know, the, the subsequent meetings that happen internally, the decisions that are made internally, the decision-making process that happens internally, to, to getting the FBI involved, to you know, to leveraging uh, your cyber insurance, to leveraging your cybersecurity partners. Um, we interviewed people with the FBI. Uh, we interviewed, um, actually, this is something I didn't know existed until we interviewed them. It's a, uh, a ransomware negotiator. So it's a sort of a, a third party that steps in and acts as a, as a mediator of sorts if you do decide to engage with, uh, with the hackers that have compromised your systems or have compromised your data. So uh, it's, it's going to be a very interesting read. Um, and that comes out in either late January or early February, around the same time as our cyber risk and data privacy event. Um, and we'll have the, some of the folks who will be interviewed as part of that case study will be also involved in this event. So we're sort of, we're sort of melding the, the long-form case study, the, the long read, with the uh, virtual event where, where people can actually pepper these these subject matter experts with questions. So we're, we're really excited about that. And then, you know, we, we have our, our main national conferences humming along. Um, we're super, super happy to announce that we've booked um, SEC Commissioner uh, Hester Peirce is going to be one of our keynote speakers at this event. Um, so we're very happy about that. We're in, we're in talks to book uh, a number uh, of others as well. I'm not ready to announce anything quite yet, but uh, just know it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great time. We're really looking forward to being back in person. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we're, you know, we're all systems go in, in steaming ahead, planning ahead for that. Well, I'm for one, very excited about obviously the annual conference, but frankly, this best practices 
sort of forum on ransomware sounds really interesting. I don't want to call it a hybrid event, but when you can pair kind of pair P-A-I-R, the two formats of a written report or the long form articles that you guys are so well known for now together with the panel and you can actually prepare a little beforehand. Uh, that that sounds really intriguing, Dave. Yeah, so we, we intentionally set it up this way so that we would be launching this report in advance of the of the conference. So that it's like you said, you can you can actually read it, you can go through it, and then you know come prepared to to hear from some of the primary sources involved in the reporting. So we've, you know, I think Allie McDevitt is working on it and she's talked to maybe 12 people so far. She's got a few more on her list and then we'll have at least four or five of them speaking at this event. So, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about that too. We think it's a good opportunity to sort of go across two different formats here. Uh, well, all that sounds great. Uh, now let's move to, uh, I guess we no longer save the world, uh, but we do talk sports and, uh, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, the biggest sporting event over the last 24 hours has been the baseball strike. And I would say it's like all baseball strikes, it's about money. But in reading everything I can, frankly, I can't quite figure out what the owners want here other than to maybe spank the players, get some additional playoff games, which it doesn't seem to me to be too big of a controversy. And so I'm an old union guy. And when you have people that aren't working and are not being paid, that's not the time to lock them out. I don't know who gave them that advice. But anyway, you're a sports reporter. You've been around this for a long time. I don't know if you covered 96 or 95, but uh, what do you think? So I think, you know, I, so what I read about it, I know, here's what I know. I know that the day before this lockout happened, they met, I believe it was in Texas. They met for seven minutes, the two sides. They, they met for seven minutes before they came to the conclusion that, okay, this lockout's happening. And yes, okay, it's not a big deal to have a lockout that you start in December. Nothing's happening in December. But that is not, I, don't, I haven't seen any indication that this is not going to be another long protracted situation. So the, the MLB Players Union, you know, as is pretty well known, that union is is uh, is stronger than most, and among the sports leagues, it's it is absolutely the most powerful. We have guaranteed contracts. Uh, there is there is a lot of power with that players' union, and to be honest, it's you know this does feel like to me, and you know your instinct I think was was spot on here. It feels like it's the owners trying to, to puff their chests out a little bit to make a power play here. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to come across to fans. And, our, you know, I'll keep, and also keep in mind an already dwindling fan base, particularly among the younger set. Uh, it's going to come across as sour grapes if this drags on into March, potentially into April. You know, opening day is supposed to be March 31st. I would, if I had to place a bet on, you know, the over/under when opening day is going to be, uh, I'd probably give it May, May first, maybe June. So we're looking at maybe, you know, at least a delay to the start of the season. And, and keep in mind, we haven't even been through free agency yet. Like, sure, a few have signed, but there's a lot, a lot of players that haven't. So you know, the longer this drags on, you know, the more tuned out I think 
fans are going to be, uh, especially during these winter months when you've got the NBA to look forward to. You've got the college football playoff, the NHL. You've got March Madness coming up, you know, obviously down the road a bit, but uh, there are other, and then the NFL season too. So, you know, during these months when people, when the fans' attention is going to be elsewhere, it's, you know, it's not like they've got, it's not like there's a, there's a scarcity of other things to watch, but really when baseball will have its opportunity come April, when there's no NFL, there's no college football, no more college basketball. If they're still in this lockout come that time and they miss this opportunity um, again, you know, the lessons learned from 95, 96, uh, then, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think they're, you know, they were in a lot stronger position coming out of the, the, uh, the last work stoppage back in, you know, the, in the nineties, the baseball as a sport was in a much stronger position than it is now. Like now it's, I, you know, I would probably rank it third among the three, the four major sports, uh, four major professional sports, I should say, uh, in, in, in the U S. So, you know, at the time back in, back in the nineties, it was probably number, I don't know, for me, it was number one, but uh, it was it was at least number two. It was much stronger than the NBA, particularly the NBA in the '90s. Was those you know it was the if the personification to me of '90s NBA was those New York Knicks teams that were unwatchable. The defense slow it down, you know, scoring 85 points a game. Uh, so uh, those days are gone. The NBA is exciting. Um, the NFL is, has never been more popular. So this is you know it's discouraging as a baseball fan to see this. I don't see. I don't see it ending well. I don't see it ending soon. You know, it's a really prescient point, Dave. They seem to have left the fans out of the completely out of this equation. One of the most interesting op-ed pieces I read about it was from a Houston Chronicle sports writer who basically said, to heck with money, just make the game better. And I thought that that was spot on. Uh, Obviously, I watched every World Series game this year. But if you weren't an Astros or a Braves fanatic like me, probably had a hard time. And if you're on the East coast, I don't know who commits to an 11, 12 or one o'clock AM ending. If it's not your team in the, in the, in the world series, it's just almost become unwatchable unless you're completely invested in it. And then with the tanking, there's really only about eight teams that have a shot. Um, Oh, I think the brave showed us that you can make some changes mid season and still uh, have a good run. And I think the sock showed us that as well. But um, uh, the game just seems to be teetering on not irrelevancy, but moving towards that. And heaven forbid hockey ever becomes the number three top professional sport in America, because that will portend the end of baseball. Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right about fixing fixing what's wrong with the game. Not 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 worrying about who's going to get the bigger share of the money pie, but you know, making the overall money pie bigger you there are there are apps i could name five things you could do tomorrow to to make the game much more popular especially among younger people you, you could there are, there are absolutely things you can implement right away to make games quicker more fast-paced they're easier to watch and they just don't seem to be those never seem to be a focus they seem to be testing things in the minor leagues and it, it just doesn't i don't i'm not confident that those the types of things that will portend real change in baseball, I'm not confident those will ever ever be made priorities either by the union or by the owners. 
that's that's sort of where I where I'm sitting on that now. I'm, I'm still I'm I'm a little bit bitter today <laughs> at baseball. <laughs> Well, one thing I'm not bitter about is last Saturday when the University of Michigan, my Wolverines, uh, beat Ohio State for the first time in eight years. So a huge win. Uh, I was on the edge of my seat the whole game. Uh, My wife avoided me uh, pretty much full time. Uh, I'm a little boisterous. But Michigan is now playing for the Big Ten championship game this Saturday. And if they win, they'll make it to the final four. Um I am. Uh, I think Alabama plays Georgia in the SEC championship game this weekend. I still don't know how Auburn lost to Alabama uh, because I watched that game too. And uh, we're going to see. I think Georgia's ahead of the class right now, but who knows what could happen once you get in the playoffs? Yeah, I, w- I would put Georgia ahead of everyone else too. But I mean, I, I have to say personally, I was. I don't really have a. Uh, a dog in the fight, if you will, but it, it's it's fun to see. Uh, I like I like Jim. I'm a big Harbaugh guy. I like Harbaugh, uh, so it's good to see Michigan sort of get over that hump. Ohio State, no matter no matter what, always seems to. And, and no offense here, not only beat Michigan, but usually embarrasses Michigan. Uh, it's really it's really nice to see that change, and not especially you know getting to the the personal aspect of it is. Uh, I know I saw that uh, that Harbaugh has uh, has said he's going to donate all the, all of his incentive money this year to to the Michigan athletic department and in, in particular to the individuals who either lost their jobs or were on furlough during the pandemic. So I think that's a great story, um, and it's it's good to see it's good to see Michigan there again. Like I feel like the Harbaugh years years have been up and down, but primarily down. It's good to see Michigan back in the in the conversation. It's good to see Harbaugh. Good to see people with personality like that in the conversation. I hope I hope Michigan does win the Big Ten. I hope they're in the in the playoff. Uh, I'd like to see Michigan go up against the Georgia or an Alabama because you know Alabama's going to be there. Uh, yeah, it's it's fun to see, and it's fun to you know I like to see Ohio State lose too. I don't know why, but I yeah Ohio State gets it gets annoying. Well, uh, we're in complete agreement on that point. Uh, for the final sports note, I wanted to pose the following question, to, hypothetical question to you, I should sure. say, because at this point, the t- two teams uh, playing each other in the Super Bowl with the highest percentage per the Vegas odds are, of course, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New England Patriots. So here's the question, Dave. You love the Patriots. I love Tom Brady. I love Bill Belichick. I love greatness. Is this our Super Bowl? Is this the ultimate game for people like us, or is this for the rest of the world a Super Bowl nightmare? Uh, no, not a nightmare at all. I mean, I think I, I think people like Tom. Tom Brady's more likable now on the Bucs. Let's face it. But, so Tom Brady's likability went down with uh, his association with Bill Belichick. Outside of New England, Bill Belichick is not a uh, obviously not a not a admired person. I mean, I, I admire him. I think he's a fantastic football coach. Uh, I do think he's, I do think his surliness and his, um, how do I want to put it? Uh, he has a, an air of entitlement about him because of what he's accomplished. So he doesn't treat the media very well. He doesn't, you know, I mean, that's, that's probably a personal gripe on my part, but, but I'm getting away from the general point here, which is, uh, I love to see the Patriots playing as well as they are. Mac Jones is the real deal. I think the Patriots have their next quarterback. 
However, he's a rookie. He's he. You've seen the kind of mistakes that he makes. He makes dumb throws sometimes. He makes wrong decisions. He misses open receivers. So, I mean, I you know the Vegas odds being what they are. I know the Patriots have won six straight. It is difficult for me, even as a Patriots fan, to see the Patriots getting to the Super Bowl. Uh, I'd love to see it. I think it's too early, and I would love to eat my words, but uh, I don't see it happening, especially if you go up against the likes of Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, who are, yes, down year, uh, down year overall in the AFC. No one's really stepped up. Buffalo's down. The Titans have had injury problems, and they've lost to the Texans and the Jets and just some awful teams. Bills have lost to some awful teams. So there, there's nobody, there's no team that's really gained any separation. So I won't rule it out, but I I have to believe that there's going to be a team here that catches fire. And, and my money's on the Chiefs uh, in the AFC. That's, that's going to, uh, at the end of the day, teach Mac Jones some important lessons the hard way. Uh, but that being said, I love to watch it. This was... This is a this is a found year for me as a Patriots fan. Like after last year in Cam Newton and the way they started this year, two and four, uh, to see Mac Jones come along the way he has and to see the Patriots defense as electric as it is, um, it's just great to see that. And the, there are comparisons being made to this 2001 Patriots team that was led by Brady in his first year as a starter after Drew Bledsoe got hurt, and that team was led by its defense and. Brady at that point was a game manager. He was a dink and dunk quarterback, very similar to Mac Jones. Same offensive coordinator in Josh McDaniels. Uh, but that said, I think uh, I think it's early. I think it's early to call the Patriots favorites. I think it's early to call them. Uh, I think I think this year is a success if the Patriots win a playoff game. I'll say that. So uh, first of all, when it comes to pressure and whether Mac Jones can handle pressure, I think of what Doc. Prescott said when they asked him as a rookie, how on earth can you handle this pressure? And he said, I played in Tuscaloosa. Well, he was a quarterback at Mississippi state uh, and he played in Tuscaloosa. Uh, Mac Jones played in Tuscaloosa every other week. So he's played in pressure pack games in the sec. Uh, number two, um, the road to the super bowl goes through Buffalo. And why does it go through Buffalo? Number one, the Patriots play them twice in the last month. But the Buccaneers also play them. So the Bills have a very tough schedule. And I don't know if, you know, the Belichick mojo on the Bills will come out or not. But, you know, those are going to be highly competitive games, every one of them. So when you're playing your number one opponent head up, it's as on you as it can be. And the Bills have a tough game against the Bucs as well. So uh, I'm – kind of leaning now towards I'm thinking the Patriots are the favorites for the East Eastern division. And uh, if Mahomes catches fire, he catches fire, but uh, they they've shown a few weaknesses this year that I'm not sure they can correct in mid 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 season. Yeah. So I'll say this about your comment about Mac Jones facing the pressure in Tuscaloosa. I'll, I'll just ask, I'll ask, I'll ask the question. Did he really face pressure in Tuscaloosa? Yes, there's pressure to perform. But did, if you recall, the the talent that he had around him was incredible. He was he was throwing it to uh, oh god, I forget the names now. But I know Waddle in Miami having a fantastic year. Like some of the, some of his targets are, I think three 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 people 
either on his receiving core or in his backfield or in the NFL. So at Alabama, he had all the weapons. He had wide open receivers. Uh, granted, I couldn't hit a wide open receiver, but if you're an NFL caliber starting quarterback, you could. So I would take issue with that. But the, but you're right in the sense I didn't I I actually didn't know that Buffalo was going to be facing Tampa down the stretch here. I think that that might actually give I think you're right they give the Pats the edge in the AFC East even if they do. So I predict they probably will split with Buffalo. They'll win one, they'll lose one. Uh, the Patriots might lose to the Colts. Uh, Colts are playing pretty well, but you know I don't I don't see the Patriots getting the number one seed. I don't see them getting that by. I think they win a home playoff game and they go on the road and they lose to one of the Chiefs, perhaps the Ravens. I don't know. I just don't see it as their year. I, I would never count out Brady in the NFC, but he's got a he's got a tougher road. There's some 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 heavyweights in the NFC, starting with probably the Packers and the Cardinals. Now with Kyler Murray coming back healthy, potentially, uh, I think that's a tougher road for uh, for Brady. Well, it's been a really interesting NFL season. You're absolutely right. No one has separated themselves really in either league. Perhaps maybe the uh, Packers have because of the level of play of uh, Aaron Rodgers. Um, So uh, it's going to be a fun last six weeks is all I have to say. Yes. And you know what we're not going to be talking about is baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately not, or perhaps fortunately well, yeah. Dave, as always, this has been great. I look forward to uh, reading the articles that are coming out in the December issue and uh, hope we can catch up towards the end of this month to uh, take a look back and look forward uh, into the first month of 2022 for us. Same here, Tom. Thanks a lot for having me. Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I've linked to the articles we referenced in this podcast so that you can take a deeper dive into them. I've also linked to information and registration materials for Compliance Week 2022 conference. I hope you will check out both of those. I am extraordinarily thrilled to be headed back to a live event in uh, May of next year, and I hope that you will join me at Compliance Week 2022. Thanks again for listening. Dave and I will be back at the end of November to take another look back at Compliance Week from the editor's desk.
you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.